Uh, we talked about um, art last week, language this week, and then next week we're going to talk about song, and those three things being these motivating factors. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed or I've uh, become aware of, um, in part because you have shared this with me, is that a lot of times I share stories, but I never quite give the ending of the story. Uh, because to me, the story is leading to the point, the story isn't necessarily the point. And so this week, many of you with pressing questions came to me and said, there were a few things you left undone. And uh, so I want to answer them for you this morning, just so we're all on the same page. The answers are no, no, and no, okay? <laughs> now we're all on the same page. I'll remind you, those of you that were here, uh, what those three no's are. No, I did not talk to Bon Jovi at the art museum. We were there at the same time, but I did not speak to him, okay? I know many of you asked me, it's pressing, so I want to make sure I covered it. Two, no, I do not remember what movie I went to in the story that I told you. No idea. That was like 20 years ago. If you want to look it up and try to figure it out, have at it, but I have no clue what movie it was, right? Three, no, I do not have a problem with stealing, okay? Some of you were curious because I said as an illustration, mind you, that uh, if I had a habit of stealing library books or bookstore books, that would be frowned upon. That was kind of the point, right? Um, but because I have an addiction to learning, and you guys know that, several of you were curious, <laughs> to say the least, if I was not kind of subtly revealing something to you. So I'm going to be on the record here, no, I do not have a problem with stealing. Thank you for your genuine concern. And uh, so that was last week, art. This week, I will work to make sure I finish all my stories, just so you're not uh, leaving like any with cliffhangers, okay? Um, but we're going to talk about language, because language is equally as important and then next week, we're going to talk about an elephant, uh, the elephant of shame. And I'm going to tie that idea of shame to a, a concept related to music or song, okay? So next week, elephant of shame. This week, we're talking about language. And I know for many of you right now, maybe it wasn't really pressing what movie I went to this week. You hadn't been thinking about it, but some other thing related to language was incredibly pressing in our culture and society, and that is this, the debate between is it Yanni or is it Laurel, right? <laughs> I know that a lot of you have been really concerned about this. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Don't worry. It was like that dress a long time ago that when you put the, you saw the picture, yep, that one. Some of you are like, oh, I totally see this color. Other people are like, no, our eyes play tricks on us. Don't worry about it, right? The same thing is happening with this Yanni and Laurel. The idea is one clip is played. Some people in the room would hear Yanni when it's played, and others would hear Laurel, okay? Just to finish the story for you, it's Laurel, okay? Um, at least I think so. But the point is that uh, we can hear the exact same clip, the, the very same thing, and we can come to two completely different opinions about it. That's a lot of the way language works, that you hear a particular statement made and I interpret it one way and you interpret it another. Now you could even read something in a story or watch something with the language of movies and go, man, I, I totally caught this 
and someone else catches something completely different. And so there's this weird thing going on with us as it relates to language, because while we can hear the same thing, and while we think we're hearing the same thing, in fact, we are believing it to be two separate things. While this was raging on the internet, there was another little soundbite that also was raging that I want to see if any of you picked up on, and it was the difference between uh, brainstorm and green needle. Raise your hand if you uh, heard about brainstorm and green needle. So like three of you, four of you, thank you. Um, I'm not alone. I appreciate that at least one other person or a few other people went down the rabbit trail with me. Um, and in fact, I really didn't go down the rabbit trail. I had people sending me this, uh, just going, hey, look at this. Uh, anyhow, I'm going to play a little clip for you. And here, before we play the clip, uh, it is just a short little clip that you're going to hear the word, um, you're going to hear brainstorm, okay? And uh, what I want you to do is think about brainstorm. I want you to listen for that word. It's a short little clip. We'll probably play the clip twice or it'll repeat. And then just raise your hand if you hear brainstorm, okay? It's as simple as that. We want to test this out and see if it works, all right? Uh, you're going to hear some like crackling noise and then the word, okay? See if it works. Okay, brainstorm. Okay, raise your hand if you heard brainstorm. Okay, awesome. Now we're gonna hear green needle. Okay, so we're looking for green needle. You need to listen for green needle, and then what I want you to do is raise your hand if you hear green needle. And I know it's a little fuzzy and you might not be able to hear it, but green needle, okay? Go ahead, play it again. Green needle. Excellent. Okay, the one little difference is I didn't actually play two separate clips. You probably already caught on to that. It's one clip. The exact same thing played twice. One time you hear brainstorm. The other time you hear green needle. And the reason has nothing to do with the audio and nothing to do with your ears. It has everything to do with your mind. Okay? What we are doing simply is conditioning what you're about to hear. And so by saying, hey, brainstorm, brainstorm, think about brainstorm, here, listen for brainstorm, then you automatically pick up on brainstorm. If we then say green needle, think about green needle, listen for green needle, raise your hand if it's green needle, then you hear green needle. Pretty crazy how our brains work. Part of why I bring this up is because this also happens with language. If you are told something again and again and again, and you begin to believe the thing you're told again and again and again, and then when someone tells you something different, you still hear the thing you were told. Or if they convince you to hear something different, then maybe you are open enough to hear the new thing, right? And so what often happens, not only do we have Yanni and Laurel moments when we both hear something different, we also find these times with language where we hear the exact same thing, but because we've conditioned ourselves to hear it in a particular way, we hear it in that particular way. It's fascinating what our brains can do, and it's also fascinating how language works. And this morning, we're going to look at this concept of language in the Gospel of John. If you have your Bible, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. It was read to you a little bit earlier uh, by Jocelyn. And it is also going to be on the screen, but I would love for you to turn to it 
uh, in your copy of the text because that way you can keep glancing at it um, as well as we talk about it. My intent is to walk us through this passage a little bit uh, because it is filled with language and words and metaphor and ideas and concepts that many of us have maybe heard one way uh, and conditioned ourselves to think of, or maybe we haven't looked at it in the original language and we're wondering what is it really uh, communicating and what can we learn from this particular uh, text. And so we're going to go through each of these sections. Let me read it as a whole and then we will uh, dissect it a little bit. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, the very first phrase that's introduced in this particular passage at the beginning of chapter 14, verse 1, is this little phrase that says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Okay, a really beautiful statement at the very beginning that Jesus is saying to the group of his disciples. There's a couple things that I want us to notice about the text that are important. If you were to read this um, in the Greek, it's going to go along these lines. Let not your heart be too troubled. That's what the text would say. Let not your heart be too troubled. Now, pause for just a moment on the your heart idea, okay? What is significant about the language with that part of the text? Okay, it's specific. What else? This is like for all the English majors in the room that just love like grammar and context and all that kind of stuff. What do we notice about the words your and about the word heart? Any ideas? Okay, personal. Singular and plural. You got a really interesting thing going on here that we just kind of brush over because... We translate it your hearts, but technically, it would be translated your. Your in English is plural. Your in Greek, also plural. Okay? So you have this plural statement. We're talking about a group of people. He's talking specifically to the disciples. So he says, do not let your group, heart, singular, be too troubled. Now, some of you are going, who cares, Right? And I'm going to suggest that this is important for a very specific reason. It's important because what he, Jesus, is saying in the midst is that a collective can have a singular. A collective group can have a singular heart. A collective group can have a singular heart. You notice this with teams. You notice this with colleges. A college has a collective New community, as a group of individuals, can have a one singular collective heart. Your small group, as a group of individuals, your singular heart. It's important. 
It's important because what we need to recognize is that communities develop together and grow together. And it's not in our culture often that we think we just go singular, 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 singular. I'm only worried about my heart. But we have to be worried about the collective heart. The collective heart of a community, of a small group, of a group of people, of a, a group that gathers together. But Jesus also goes forward and he says this, don't let your heart be too troubled. We just kind of hack out the two part. And so we kind of just go, well, like, just don't be troubled at all. But he's saying, don't be too troubled. Now, why would he say to them right at the very beginning, don't be too troubled? What does the context tell us about it? If you look, and this is why I wanted your text open, if you look in the chapter right before it, you're going to see a few things going on that might raise a little bit of anxiety among the disciples. Any guesses of what they are? Okay, I'll give you a little hint. Jesus is sitting down. They're having food. They're hanging out. We typically call it the Last Supper. At the Last Supper, Jesus gets up, washes the disciples' feet, sits back down. He goes, hey, newsflash, I'm going to tell you a little something, a little secret. One of you will betray me. And the disciples, one by one, the text says in Matthew, go, is it I, Lord? Am I the one? Next disciple. If it's not him, is it me? Could I be the one? He never really answers. He kind of like subtly answers, but people don't get it. The disciples often didn't get things, just like us. And so he just subtly answers it, and then they're like, oh, man. Well, that would be cause for concern. One of us will betray him. Maybe some anxiety. The second thing is, he pulls Peter aside right before this story. And he goes, hey, Peter, just wanted you to know something. Rooster, three times, you deny me. Okay? And Peter's like, no, 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 no. And Jesus is like, well, actually, yes, 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 you will. A bit troubling for Peter. Peter's saying, I'm, I would go to the ends of the earth to commit to you. I will die for you. And Jesus goes, on the contrary, you will betray me. And he follows those two statements up with, don't let your heart be too troubled. So the question would be, how do you not let your heart be too troubled when those are the two things that he says? I mean, those are pretty big. I would even argue that for us, those are bigger than maybe what is currently troubling your heart. I often have my heart troubled, nervous, worried, anxious, concerned. Maybe you have felt the same at some point. So how does he answer it? He simply says, believe in God, believe in me. What a beautiful answer. No matter what it is you're going through, whatever anxiety you currently have, whatever fear about the future, something that will come later today, a doctor report you're waiting on, some relationship that's difficult or tense, don't let your heart be troubled. How? Believe in me. Trust, faith, Jesus. And we'll get into Jesus even more as we keep moving farther into the text. It says this next. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Pause right there. What does that mean? 
When we say Father's house, what do we instantly think of? Or what have you been conditioned to instantly think of? Heaven. Great. Good answer. We conditioned, or have been from the time we're little, go to prepare a place for you. It's going to be heaven, heaven, awesome. That's beautiful. The point of this isn't so much the first part of the phrase, but the second half of this, where he then says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, and this is the part he's really trying to get at in the text, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. When John, the gospel writer, is describing heaven or describing what we jump to the conclusion of heaven, what he's really communicating is this idea that where Jesus' presence is, is heaven. Where he is present, you are a part of the kingdom of God. Where he is near, it is a bit of heaven. You notice this in your life. You might notice it in mine. You notice it in people around you. They had the privilege of walking with Jesus, and he says to them, where I am is heaven. Where I am present. And what's interesting is John goes as far as to say this, that where I am, you may be also. He's trying to drive home this idea that the not in its fullness, not in its completeness. It's not to say, don't look forward to someday in the future. It's to also say that the present reality is just as significant as the one to come. So abide in the presence of Jesus. Dale Bruner in his commentary went on to say this. Clearly then, heaven in John's gospel is most simply the real presence of Jesus Christ himself with his people. This is the next life's most simple, compact, intimate, and adequate definition. Going much beyond this definition is not often suggested in Jesus' recorded teaching in any of the Gospels. What Bruner is suggesting is, don't just start adding to this vision of heaven that we are looking forward to. Instead, recognize that the most central component of what we understand to be life after the life we presently live is the presence of Jesus. Dial into that is what the text is communicating. Next, and Thomas says this right after that. And you know the way to where I'm going, that's Jesus. And then Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I love this section because you got to love Thomas. Thomas is the man, okay? Now, I say that because two of the most significant phrases in all of the Gospel of John, and some could even argue all of the New Testament or the entire Bible, were produced because of Thomas. The first one, Thomas, when we often call him Doubting Thomas, Thomas is in this moment of doubt. He's before Jesus doesn't think he's going to see him again. All of a sudden, Jesus walks in. They're like, that's Jesus. He's like, I don't think so. He's doubting. And Jesus goes, look, touch, feel, I, I am Jesus. And Thomas touches and realizes, and then he has this most amazing statement. He says, my Lord and my God. One of the most definitive statements of Jesus being fully God is this statement by doubting Thomas, right? 
one of the most profound, non-doubting statements is by Thomas. But Thomas also has this really cool statement that is produced because of confusion. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus responds to Thomas's confusion with that statement. Now, several weeks ago, maybe a month ago, Julie talked about doubt and how it is the twin sister of faith. And what I mean by that is this idea that without doubt, it is impossible for you then to have faith. They are twin sisters. They're on the opposite side of the same coin. That sometimes we're like, don't you ever doubt. No, doubt has to be present in order for faith to be present. It's just a reality. And so, Thomas is in that moment. I'm going to suggest a little something about confusion. It is okay in your faith to be confused at times. It is okay to not know every answer. It is okay to be told an answer and then go, yeah, I don't think so. That's okay. In fact, we support it with the Bereans, right? It's okay to think you know something and then change your mind on it. It's okay to be confused and not know. All of those things within our faith are okay and beautiful. We have within the church oftentimes an idol of certainty. What I mean by that is I believe this and will always believe this and you will not tell me otherwise about this thing. And then even when we're convinced maybe it's not that thing, we got to hold on to it because we were certain at one point. I'm suggesting that Thomas is confused. Jesus goes, hey, don't worry. Presence with me where I am, there you will be also. Thomas, I don't even know where you're going. What is happening here? So confused. Let me remind you of something. If in your faith you are not at some point confused, I'm going to suggest you haven't read the story. I'm going to suggest that you haven't really immersed yourself in the story of Jesus. Let me give you like a 20-second snapshot of the story of Jesus. There was Jesus, born of a virgin, the only person in the history of the world ever to be born of a virgin, who was born, shepherds show up, Wise men from some other foreign place that we have no clue where come. They all worship him. They all leave. That's the only thing we know about his early childhood, except that he then is a refugee, flees to Africa, lives there for an undisclosed period of time before coming back to his hometown, hangs out there for a while. The only other story we have about any of his adolescence is that when he's 12, Jesus stays at a temple to hang out and talk. They keep going. They're on the journey for a long time. Then they realize, no, Jesus. They turn around. They scold him. But he wasn't wrong. But it was that awkward thing that parents probably did over and over, and they hated it. Like, Jesus, that's your fault. Well, that's technically no. And so, like, I mean, that would be like the worst parenting situation ever, right? In yours, you could at least know that there's something that is probably wrong. In that case, no. Or as a brother, always blaming Jesus and never it being his fault. That would be frustrating. Right? So you have this moment. That's all we know about his childhood. Then we get to his adulthood, and what we know is that Jesus is in a gang of 12 guys that all quit their jobs, lived off the state and other people's support. They were political uprisers. 
He got grabbed because of his political views. He was crucified. He died. We threw him in a tomb. He came out three days later, and now we say he lives in you. Right? That's the story. If at any point that doesn't confuse you just a little, then you haven't really, like, immersed yourself in the story. It's crazy and beautiful and true and real, but at the same time a little bit, like, interesting. Right? Can we, like, agree to that? That's the story. And it's amazing, but it's okay to be confused because in moments of confusion, like Thomas had, is also times when then you find the most clarity. Because Jesus in that moment says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. One of his most profound I am statements. I know all of you know that the Gospel of John is framed around eight I am statements. So each Gospel is written with different points of emphasis. Some are about his discourses. Some are about his miracles. John kind of organizes the whole thing around eight I am statements. I want you to know these things. And they're all statements that Jesus makes about him being I am. The I am from the beginning. Jesus is saying I am that I am. Right? And then he's tying and metaphors and language and ideas to it. It's a really beautiful thing that Jesus does, but a beautiful thing that John does with the text. And I want to suggest that when these eight I am statements are made, that two primary things are happening. The first one that we need to catch is this, that Jesus meets you where you're at. Jesus meets you, he always meets you where you're at. Like he accommodates the situation you're in and comes and finds you at the space in which you need him the most and he meets you there. That's an essential reality for us to understand. It doesn't matter what you're going through, Jesus meets you in that particular moment. Now the I am statements, just to refresh your memory, here's a list of them. I am the bread of life, I'm the light of the world. He talks about being the sheep gate, the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. The true vine, and then he makes this statement, which is the eighth one, before Abraham was, I am. Right? A beautiful, beautiful statement about his uh, history and who he is as a person. But I want to suggest in each of these that what Jesus is doing is meeting us where we're at. That what Jesus does is he meets you where you are and what you need to hear is what he communicates to you. Whatever situation you're in, that's what he's communicating. Let me give you an example of what I mean. To the blind man, right before he healed him, he said, I'm the light of the world. Right? The man has never seen light. He's been blind his whole life. And Jesus goes, this is about to change for you. And then I am the light of the world is what he says before the first time he sees light. He says to Martha and Mary who are weeping over the death of Lazarus. They're crying and he says to them, do not be afraid. I am the resurrection and the life. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. You have to a group of people who are all hungry who are sitting around going, man, I need to eat. I need sustenance. I'm starved. He says, I'm the bread of life. And then he multiplies the bread and feeds 
thousands and thousands and thousands of people because he's always meeting you where you're at. He, he doesn't go to the group of people who are hungry and who are pleading for a meal and who are like, man, I don't know when I'll eat next. And he doesn't say, hey, I'm the way. They'd be like, I don't care. I'm still hungry. Right? He, he doesn't go to the person who can't see or needs vision and says, instead of saying I'm the light of the world, he doesn't just say, hey, I'm the bread of life. Again, no context. They would be disappointed. And it doesn't meet them where they're at. See, language is so powerful that the metaphors he's using, the statements he's making are meant to inspire and give hope and belief. And I think sometimes what we do with these metaphors and this language is we try to make it like so literal and, and it gets like chunky when we're out of life, but I'm gluten intolerant and I don't know what to do with it. I'm struggling. It's not literally he's bread. He's describing something like I will fill you completely, that I am the one that provides sustenance for you, that I'm the one that meets every need you have. Like that's the point. Not that he's literally bred. But sometimes when we get to these, we kind of get them out of whack. When Jesus said, I think this is really important to understand. When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he meant it as a promise, not as a threat. Right? He meant it as a promise, not as a threat. Now, some of you are going, I don't even see the threat in it. It's the one phrase of all of those eight that we turn around to be a negative threat toward other people. When someone goes, I'm hungry, we go, Jesus is the bread of life. We go, wow, what a promise. Or when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life, we're like, that's an amazing promise. When he says, I'm a good shepherd that loves sheep, we go, that's an amazing promise. But when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, sometimes we're like, well, you better watch out. And, and it's really, it's a beautiful promise. And it's a response. It's a response to Thomas. Thomas, I, I don't know where we're going. And Jesus, I'm the way. Just, just me. Don't, don't worry. I got you. It's okay. It's just me. He's confused. And in your confusion and in my confusion, he just simply comes in and says, I'll meet you where you're at. And whatever you're confused about, I'll, I'm the answer. I'm the one. I am. I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. It's this amazing statement. It's a beautiful, beautiful promise. And he is all the answer. And so it leads to the second thing I think we have to hear when we're listening to this green needle brainstorm thing. We need to hear that Jesus is all we need right? So not only is he saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, he is absolutely all we ever need. To the directionless, if you feel like you don't know what the future holds and you have no idea where you're going, he is saying to you, I am the way. To the hungry, to those who are famished, metaphorically speaking or physically speaking, he is saying, I am the bread of life. To the misguided, 
to the confused, he is saying, I am the truth. To the thirsty, he is saying, I am the living water. To the hopeless, he is saying, I am the hope of the world. To the weak, he is saying, I am strong. To the threatened, he is saying that I am a protector. To the fatherless, he is saying, I am a father. To the lonely, he is saying, I am a friend. To those of you that have ever felt like, I don't know if I want to keep living, and it might be better to not be, he is saying, I am life. Right? This is what Jesus is saying. These metaphors, this language is beautiful because he is communicating to you and to me whatever it is that you are facing. Whatever it is that you need, he is unequivocally the answer to all of it and always will be. I want to read these few verses out of Lamentations 3 just to close and have you think about this. Um, the band's going to come and play one more song and then we'll close after that with the benediction. But the verses say this. Yet hope returns when I remember this one thing. The Lord's unfailing love and mercy shall or still continue. Fresh as the morning, as sure as the sunrise. The Lord is all I have and so in him I put my hope. May that be our prayer. The Lord is all we have and so in him I put my hope. God, we want so badly to know you as life and light and hope and all that we need for any moment. I pray that this morning we would recognize that again, that that would speak to us, that it would be a fresh reality. And if anyone is feeling in any capacity that you are not enough, God, may you direct them to someone in their group. May you direct them to me. May you direct them to someone else to reassure them that in all of Jesus' language, what he is communicating is to come to him. All who are thirsty, come to me, and you'll find living water. All who are hungry, I can meet your need. And may this week we see that as a reality. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.